Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, grace and peace to you. Now, given, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> given that we spoke about marriage and the family last week, um, I want to speak about something this morning that doesn't get much attention in the church, and that is celibacy or singleness, as we might call it today. Um, now, trust me, this is not going to be a message on purity. Um, we're not having the talk, but um, rather on the role that celibacy plays within the church. And not incidentally, our Lord and his greatest apostle um, were both single, were both celibate. This is a very important concept. And though not many are called to the vocation of celibacy, um, many are single or will become single. So we ought to know what is required of us in this stage in life. Now, while it might seem like a bummer and uh, a sort of existence to be avoided at all costs, that's not how the Scripture depicts um, singleness. In fact, it's a good thing, and it's a high and noble calling. And really, I will see if I can convince you of this today, it's the fullest form of human existence of course, demonstrated by our Lord himself. So that being the case, I want to speak about singleness or celibacy. We'll use those words um, synonymous or uh, as the same word or whatever I'm trying to say um, in three areas. In three areas. Um, the goodness of singleness or celibacy, the happiness that it brings. But first, I want to talk about its practical value and, and what it serves in that dimension. So, 1 Corinthians 7, which we just read, is an extended treatment on marriage and singleness, in fact, the longest in the Scriptures. And Paul gives proper counsel on marriage. He talks about sexual relations between the husband and the wife. He talks about unbelieving spouses and the rest. But he also talks about singleness. He talks a bit about what it is, we see that um, indirectly, and then what it's for. Now, both options are good, right? Neither is wrong, but the apostle is very clear about his own preference. He says in verse 7, I wish that all men were as I am, single, in other words. So it's not better than marriage, singleness. It's not a more worthy option in life, but it has its advantages. 1 Corinthians, uh, or chapter 7 of our passage, verses 32 to 34 Paul says, but I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. So he says, I want you to be free. Now his argument um, is simple and practical. A single person is not weighed down by the same cares as someone who is married. Such a person, he says, a married person, is concerned with the things of the world. Now, he doesn't mean that in a negative sense, right? There's no inclination at all in the New Testament that marriage and raising children is indeed a bad thing. In fact, it's quite the opposite. But he means that in a realistic sense. Marriage... And family require a large degree of investment in the world. 
And the word that he uses is concern or care, as some translations have it. Even if you have the, I believe it's the ESV, they translate it anxiety. And it speaks to the endless responsibilities that come with raising a family. Now, Paul doesn't disparage this way of life. What he does instead is recognize the copious amounts of time and attention and money that it requires. And though um, I've only been a father for two months, I can give a hearty amen. My wife's in the back taking care of her right now. So the contrast is not between good and bad, right? One's good, one's bad. It's not between spiritual and unspiritual. It's not a value judgment, but it's a practical matter. What Paul is saying is that marriage is more complex. It's a more invested way of life. And celibacy is more straightforward. A married person has a duty to his spouse and to his children. It's a great responsibility, and it's a demanding role. And that, that same focus a single person does not have. For them, life is less complicated. And in that sense, Paul says, their focus is less divided. So when Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, I wish that all were as I am, he envisions that all would have the freedom to serve the gospel, to serve the cause of the kingdom as he does. Think, if the Apostle Paul were bound to the obligations of marriage and parenthood, much of his apostolic ministry would have not been possible. His missionary travels, literally going across the entire Roman Empire, his extended stay with churches, staying years at a time at Ephesus or Corinth, as we have here, risking his life for the gospel almost on a daily basis, would have been at the direct cost to his family. Now, that's not to say that ministry is impossible apart from singleness. The other apostles, Peter, uh, Paul mentions it later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, in fact. The other apostles were married, and they managed to do both, right? They took a believing wife. Um, seems as far as we can tell that they would have had children. Um, but they, and they managed to balance it. However, what the apostle Paul does say is that in the midst of that, One's interests are divided, verse 34. Such a person is being pulled in two directions, accountable for two all-encompassing responsibilities. And it's a difficult balance to strike between serving the Lord in that respect and raising a family. And it often comes with unintended consequences. A wife feeling neglected, children bearing resentment toward the church, and etc., etc. It's a very difficult difficult balance. So given this, what the apostle encourages is for others to take the path that he did. Verse 35, he says, I say this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. So he assures us, I say this for your own benefit right? Like a parent telling their children to eat vegetables. It seems his vision of singleness is a bit austere and harsh. But the time, right, needs to be taken into consideration. Not merely the customs of the time, but 
I think specifically the persecution that the church faced. I suspect when he says, I say this for your own benefit, here in verse 35, and then verse 28, I'm trying to spare you, he has in mind the other apostles and what they faced, anxious about their families. I mean, imagine that. You don't have a phone. You, don't have, uh, you can't hop on an airplane. You're, it's like being on deployment. You're gone from your family for X amount of time, hundreds of miles away with no contact or no way of knowing really their condition in a very, very difficult environment for the church. So Paul says, I'm trying to spare you. But his main concern, right, in telling the Corinthians, right, how strange would this even be, right, to hear someone today say, actually, you know what, marriage or singleness, I want you to pursue singleness. I want you to do this. Well, what would be the reason? Paul says, to secure undistracted devotion in service to the gospel. So the apostolic vision for singleness is not the same vision that we have today, right? Where there's minimal obligations, uh, you get to travel the world, you have all this discretionary income and etc. It's assumed that a single person in the church is devoting their freedom all that extra time to righteous causes rather than to personal interests. So they're not altogether free from concern, but they're concerned with other things, namely the things of the Lord. So both celibacy and marriage are hard, right? Neither of these is an either easy calling, but they're hard for different reasons. Some are called to raise children and to train them in the fear of the Lord, and others are called to give themselves completely to the work of the ministry in this manner. And so though Paul will say, like, on the one hand, I wish that all of you were single, he recognizes, verse 7, each has his own gift from God, one in this manner and one in another. So we can kind of get some idea of what the apostle thinks about singleness and what it's for. And now if you are single... Let me be clear that this is the scriptural vision for your life. Paul here is encouraging those who have the opportunity to choose singleness. But for some, right, to be single is not a choice. It was the last thing you wanted. It was the last thing you expected in your life. And while the circumstances around that might be tragic, it might be very difficult, and I don't intend to minimize that, the situation is not without redemption, and it's not without purpose. That time and freedom that serve only to remind you of what is now gone do not have to be wasted. And I'm not saying that bereavement or divorce are willed by God, but what I am saying is that even within such terrible situations, God is at work. God is bringing good from evil. Time and freedom might have been forced upon you rather than by your choice. But again, not without redeeming purpose. God would have you to commit the whole of your life to him in undistracted devotion. The time that the enemy has robbed from you, he gives back to you in service to him. So, some are single now who will not be single later, or who will be married later. And likewise, some are married now who will be single later. Nevertheless, right, the calling is the same. If you are single, whatever the circumstances, whatever the future holds, this is how it is to be spent. 
in undistracted devotion to Christ and the gospel. That's what it's for. That's what God wants from you. So I want to share two pastoral words kind of just based on um, what the Apostle Paul counsels here. One, of course, to the married and the other to the unmarried. Now to the married, um, especially to those with children, or even if you've raised children and you're past that point, um, simply don't be too hard on yourselves. Paul is very realistic and down-to-earth about his counsel here. He says, if you're married, to some degree, you're going to be concerned with the things of the world. You have to. You have to have a job. You have to do this. You have to pay the bills. And what happens when you take this way of life is a good way of life, um, is that these spiritual matters, it's a lot to balance, rather, and these spiritual matters can often slip between the cracks. You're not always going to be a model parent. You're not always going to be perfect in every respect, leading your children in the ways of the Lord. But there is grace in that situation. There's grace. And that's what the apostle says. There's just a certain degree where he, he recognizes this is the way it is if you have um, a family and if you are taking this path. Now to the unmarried. I would just encourage you to seriously consider the Apostle's recommendation to you. What designs might God have for your life? Why do you find yourself in this position at this time? Is it merely just to look for another spouse or whatever it might be? Or might there be a purpose in it? There's so much work to be done for the sake of the gospel. And you may be just the one to do it for such a time as this. Now, I'm trying to change our perspective on celibacy, and I hope I've just moved the needle just a tad. Um, It's profoundly useful for the work of the gospel, right? It enables one to serve the work without hindrance. However, though it's useful, right, we can all see that, it is not exactly desirable, or, or so we think, right? It appears that way. One may accomplish much work for the ministry outwardly, but inwardly, at the same time, right? While that's happening, they long for companionship and intimacy. So it's useful, but is it good, right? Is it good to be single? Is this actually a worthy way of life, apart from maybe some really, really committed people who just say, I'm going to forego all of it and serve the Lord with all my time? Is it a good thing? Well... Paul answers affirmatively. He says, singleness has more than practical value. Look again at verse 7. He says, I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Singleness uh, tends to be overshadowed by marriage, at least in our day. Marriage is the good thing. And singleness is the absence of that. It's defined in the negative. A single person is lacking what a married person has. They lack companionship. They lack intimacy. They lack all the things that go along with married life. Now, when that's our understanding and we view singleness only as absence, it's hard to see it as anything other than a dreadful calling that God places upon one's life, right? It's hard to see it as, okay, well, I'm just going to do this and suck it up and serve the Lord till it's my time to go. 
It's hardly uh, worth calling a gift like the apostle does here um, in verse 7. So rather than that understanding, the apostle maintains that both marriage and celibacy are intrinsically good. Each of them, in their own way, are gifts from above. In other words, no one is missing out. Married or unmarried, everyone has a share in the grace of life. Now, that's more obvious in the case of marriage, right? The goodness of it, the giftness of it. Right? You think of spouse and children and all the wonderful things that go along with that. But less so in the case of celibacy. It's a little bit harder to point out its obvious benefits. So it's a little bit harder to point out what makes it so good, like the apostle will say, and even verse 40, to say you're happier if you just choose to forego marriage altogether. So to understand the answer, right, and where Paul's coming from, because it seems so foreign to our way of thinking, to understand the answer, we have to approach singleness from a different perspective. Not the cultural one, in which there's also almost nothing good about being single and chaste. And that's the difference, right? In our culture, it's very good to be single. No one really wants to be married, Um, But it's not so good to be chaste, right? In the church, that's the definition of singleness. Both of those go hand in hand. Now, according to the cultural view, that's a nightmare. No one wants to do that. So we have to change our perspective, not the cultural view, but the biblical one. Now, Paul's instructions about marriage and celibacy, they seem very down to earth, right? He's making a practical argument. You can serve the gospel with more of your time if you're unmarried. But beneath that... His exhortations, his words about marriage and celibacy are based on very cosmic happenings. They're based on his understanding of the last things, of the end of this world and the beginning of a new creation. So let's look at verses 29 through 31, which are the backdrop and the backbone of this entire chapter. He says, But I say this, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none. And those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. Now, in the middle of a long extended discussion on marriage and singleness, this seems way out of place. Paul's talking about very earthly matters, and then he starts going into the end of the world. The time has been shortened. The form is passing away. What's going on here? Again, this forms the backdrop of what he's saying about singleness. So the world, as the apostle understands it, is on the cusp of some radical change. The time has been shortened on the one hand, and the form of this world is passing away on the other. In other words... The structures and the institutions of the world, the forms of the world that we know today, that we take for granted, are slipping into oblivion. And something new, the apostle says, is coming into being. And what he's reminding us in the midst of this discussion on marriage is that marriage is one such form, one such institution and structure of the world that is passing away. It is temporary and provisional. Its purpose is bound to this age, to the here and now. And apart from the true marriage, which is Christ to the church, it has no part to play in our resurrected existence. 
Now this our Lord confirms in his dialogue with the Sadducees who questioned that there even was a resurrection. And he says to them, Luke 20, verses 34 through 36, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. So marriage, our Lord says, is an old creation institution. In the resurrection, when the form of things will be changed, it will no longer be needed. It was and currently is needed to fulfill the original creation mandate. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And under the conditions of death that were brought about through sin, marriage is even more necessary. Its primary role is to maintain the human race when death would threaten to annihilate it. And that's what Jesus' words seem to imply anyway. There will be no marriage in the age to come because there will no longer be any death. So where there is no death and where we have attained to the resurrection, marriage and the family, the forms of this world will have served their purpose. The earth will no longer need to be filled and death will be no more. And so these bodies with the plumbing appropriate for reproduction, Jesus says, will be like angels. The form of things now will be surpassed. The world and human nature will no longer be suited to death, but to immortality. And now what it will be, this new existence, we can't say. No one knows. But we do know for sure that it's to be radically new. Almost unimaginably new what the Lord has in store for us. So, why am I going on about this? Well, it's this temporal nature of marriage, the fact that it's bound to this age, and the coming resurrection state that sets the backdrop for Paul's instruction regarding singleness now. It is, in other words, the single existence, right? This marriageless existence, the future to which every single one of us is heading, headed, married or not married. We are headed toward this future where we will be like the angels, where we will neither be given in marriage nor married, because there will no longer be any death. So we can see, right, in the, the, the biggest picture of things, where marriage and celibacy find their place. Marriage points back to the old creation. Though it mirrors Christ in the church, it points back to the old creation, and it witnesses to its goodness, and it's to its order. But celibacy, when it's done according to the will of the Lord, points to the new creation. It looks forward to our resurrected existence. So celibacy is not something better than marriage, but it does witness to something greater. It witnesses to our resurrection to come. Hence, right, what we're trying to get at, it's good. It's a very good thing. It's a gift. Because within the church, right, especially the world, we're tempted to think that celibacy is something strange or abnormal. But biblically speaking, it's the foolest form of human life. It's the life of the resurrection. It mirrors the life of our Lord in, in, in this life, and it mirrors the resurrection in 
the next. So Cyprian, right, an early church father, um, he, he, who is himself married, he wrote this to singles. He says, what we are all to become, you have begun to be. The glory of the resurrection in the next life you possess already. Now, there's a bit of hyperbole there, but you get his point. So far from being a deficiency or inherently lacking singleness, so long as it's consistent with the biblical vision, is an incredibly high calling. And it has an important role to play in the church, in our church. Because singles witness to everyone else when they are devoted to the Lord undistractedly, and when they are living as a sign of the resurrection, they're a witness to everyone else not to idolize marriage or the family. They are a reminder about the temporal nature of this world and the priority of the kingdom. The quote-unquote strangeness of a single person is a witness to the rest not to become too at home in this world. I'm not saying that marriage and the family are not good or foundational. They clearly are. Only that they are not ultimate. Our marriage to Christ and incorporation into his family are the ultimate things. And in that sense, singleness is a very clear witness to the rest what matters. Now, a consistent challenge brought against this vision of celibacy is loneliness. Now, it's a particularly modern challenge, and it goes something like this. We cannot expect people to bear the relational cost of celibacy, to forego intimacy and love, consigning themselves to a life of loneliness. It's too high a price, and we shouldn't ask it of people. Now, it's an argument that's made particularly in favor of same-sex relationships within the church. So again, celibacy is just too strict and too stern. We need to relax the standards, right? Because if someone is of same-sex orientation, and if they choose not to marry someone of the opposite sex, the only option for them left in the church is celibacy, right? That's it. That's, what, that's the option. And so some say, that's just too stern. So let's relax the standards and, and let them in. Now, while that has a particular emotional force, right, to say it's just too tough, it's simply not true that celibacy equates to loneliness and that it denies people the experience of joy and happiness that comes with family life. So how so, right? How so? Let's take, let's take a long way around. After the rich young ruler, remember that story, right? The rich young ruler went away from Jesus sorrowful because he couldn't part with his wealth. Jesus said, sell all of it, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And it says he couldn't do it, and he left. After that, Peter, who, who did that, right? Remember, he dropped his nets, he left everything, and he followed Jesus. Peter, who did that, he decided to chime in. And he asked the Lord, what he and the other disciples were going to get back because of their great sacrifice, because they did what the ruler could not do. And so Jesus responds, this is Mark chapter 10, verses 29 through 30. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. So two things stand out. One, Jesus expects everyone to leave something behind for his sake. 
There is no such thing as faith or discipleship without cost. And that cost is typically a relational one. Leaving behind brothers or sisters or mother or father or children. So as far as that same-sex argument goes, that celibacy requires too much from people, Jesus does not recognize it. He expects everyone to give up something to follow him. But two, if one is willing to accept the price, the cost of discipleship, Jesus promises that they will receive back even more, a hundred times as much in the present age, not just in the future, but in the present age, in the here and now. So in what manner, right? How can someone leave their family and the chance of companionship and all that comes with marriage and the family and receive it back a hundredfold? Well, the answer is in the church, the family of Christ. So imagine you and about 100 other people, to add like 75 people into this room. Imagine about you and 100 other people are crammed together in a room, a little mud hut, and you're listening to Jesus teach. When someone from the back shouts that Jesus' family is here. There's his mother and his brothers and so on and so forth. And they want to speak with him. So everyone turns around to see what's going on. And they turn back to Jesus. And he says this, Matthew 12, 48 through 50. Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Or imagine another such occasion. This time, a woman in the crowd blurts out from the back, almost involuntary, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. So you turn around and give her a dirty look for interrupting, and then turn back to Jesus, and he says, On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Now, based on those two interactions... What conclusions are you going to draw about Jesus and this community of disciples that he's forming? It's not hard to see the point. You are going to come upon the fact that he is reconfiguring the family, not around physical lineage. We know who his physical mother and brothers are, but rather spiritual obedience. Jesus' brothers and brothers and sisters are those who do the will of his family. So the true family is the one that Jesus is forming. So, preoccupied with our own families, and I speak here, right, as a new father, I keep saying it, I will not stop saying it, as one who, um, I speak here as one who's preoccupied with the family very much. It's such a great joy, and it's amazing. It's easy for us to miss the force of what Jesus says here, and the priority that he places upon the church. But with single people, right? That's not the case. The church is their only family. What they have given up for the sake of the kingdom of God is given back to them in the body of Christ. Their only family is the family of believers. So once again, they serve as a reminder to the rest of us that this family is the lasting one is the permanent one. And for that reason, we need 
faithful single people in the church because they keep the entire body balanced and oriented toward its ultimate goal. And in that sense, they hold our feet to the fire. When we uh, can retreat to the comfort of our own homes, they demand genuine community in the church. And they play an important role in building it. The greatest church sort of experience that I've ever had of family and unity was full of a bunch of single people. No one had any obligations but to be together and to serve the Lord together. Single people have such an important role in that aspect. And so when we get too snug and comfortable in this life, they point us to the next and they say, this is what matters. Or rather, this is what is ultimate. So, we hope to build such a community in our church where single people can have a family. And when we have that family, we can actually call people to bear the cost of discipleship. Where Jesus says that you've got to leave things behind. Well, we can say, look, you leave that behind, but we have something for you here. We need to build that sort of community. We need to have that same commitment to the life here in the church. And more importantly than that, we want to build a place where single people can devote themselves without reservation to the work of the kingdom. They can give their all to uh, the sake of the gospel. So, let's wind things down now um, with Paul's last outrageous statement in verse 40. He says that the one who chooses not to marry, in his opinion, is happier. The one who chooses not to marry is happier. So how, how could that be? Now, it's not um, that uh, they're happier in the sense that, you know, they just don't have the troubles that married people have, right? As we noted, both celibacy and marriage come with their own concerns. They're just of different varieties. And indeed, if we look at the Apostle Paul's life, this was a man burdened beyond measure because of what he chose to take on in relation to the churches. He says, I, I, I'm daily in anxiety about all these churches. So he's not an unburdened man. So he says when they're happier, a celibate person, it's not because they're carefree, right? Us married people have all this weight on our shoulders and the single people can do whatever they want. That's not what he's saying. It seems that they're happier because, verse 35, they can enjoy undistracted devotion to Christ. That is much harder to achieve in the married life. So the time and attention that singleness frees up is, one, for service, but two, for drawing near to Christ, for devotion to Him. Again, the Apostle Paul is our example. He speaks from experience. Philippians 3.8, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I count all things lost so that I can have Christ. So he may have experienced the sting in his heart, having no wife, having no children, but it was overcome, indeed forgotten, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. And I don't know about you, but these words are an extreme challenge. Uh, this is the fifth time now that I've said I'm a new father. Um, <laughs> it's the happiest I've ever been, without a doubt. And where I'm content to settle, right, and just enjoy that, there's nothing wrong with that. The apostle 
would have me to press for more. He says to something greater, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. So again, for those of you who are single, it can, be, it can seem rather like a very difficult burden. But the truth is, you're not missing out on anything. You're not. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who is seeking fine pearls. And he finds one pearl of great value. And he goes and sells all that he has so he can buy that pearl and have that one thing that he desires. That's Christ. You're not missing out on anything if you're single because you have the Lord. So, let your happiness, right, be a reminder to everyone else that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 1.21 So married or unmarried, uh, parents or not parents, Christ is the end and the happiness of all who believe, every single one of us. So whatever your situation, whatever your lot, whatever your present circumstances, let all of us say, every single one, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So as we turn now to the supper, um, toward the Lord's Supper together, um, we have the opportunity to do just that. This is where Christ promises to meet us here in the bread and the cup. He invites us to commune with him, to feast on his presence. So all this that we've talked about, let's practice it now. I invite you up to come and receive the elements, to take them back to your places, um, and to count all things lost for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, your Lord. Do that now, and I'll lead us in just a moment.